Tarnoff is the author of A Counterfeiter's Paradise and The Bohemians. He's the co-founder of Logic Magazine. His writing has appeared in a lot of different places, mostly leftist publications like Jacobin, The Guardian. His most recent piece of writing and the focus of this conversation is a book called Internet for the People. It's an incredibly engaging study of how the modern internet came to be, why it's fundamentally broken, and what steps we can take to make it less broken. I asked Ben about the approach he took in writing Internet for the People because I was really impressed with how he was able to weave metaphors in with accessible language to give folks a much deeper understanding of the stack, as it's called, or the massively complex architecture of the modern Internet. One of my favorite lines from the book comes from his description of how the internet is, quote, too sprawling to squeeze into a single frame and too big to see without a metaphor. That just makes intuitive sense, but it also becomes a sort of method for Tarnoff, as he works to explain the interlocking systems that create the conditions for living life today in a way that is increasingly saturated by internet technologies. His argument in the book is both easy to grasp and hard to pin down. When it comes to internet access, he makes it clear that in increasing access by wrestling power away from large telecom companies, these companies that pioneered the privatization of the net, isn't just important in terms of protecting customers from being gouged by ISPs, it's actually, in the era of more and more virtual activity, a basic condition of democratic decision-making and participation. One of the threats that your average internet user might be able to identify when it comes to the links between online life and a healthy democracy is this problem of filter bubbles. This is another area where Ben's robust ability to synthesize a lot of research on the subject gets combined with his capacity to break things down. He says that this idea of filter bubbles, basically, you know, brainwashing people, is just unfair and even inaccurate. And that, to me, is a crucial point because it's almost become common sense, regardless of where you sit on the political spectrum, to problematize the echo chambers manufactured by social media. But Tarnoff is saying that this assumption is misleading and hyperbolic. We talk about some of the biggest companies in tech, touching on Zuckerberg's empire, the power of Amazon and Uber, and how these companies are all sitting on a proprietary accumulation of data that makes them some of the most supremely valued corporations in history. What does it mean, Tarnoff asks, that data itself has become this valuable? The book answers that question in easy-to-parse ways, but the implications are still only now being worked through. I think it's particularly important to think about his claim that, in fact, companies like Uber are allowed to lose money, in part because of the aura around them as a novel corporate form, to use this term, and, and because of the data they collect and control. At the end of the conversation, Ben describes some of the places that he derives hope from, and you can read more about that by looking at his long piece at Logic Magazine titled The Making of a Tech Worker Movement. There's a redefinition of labor in tech that's on the way, in an industry that doesn't like to call what happens in it work, and which nonetheless relies on the skills and time and commitment of a vast cross-section of people from different classes and sectors. There is, he suggests, also a radical break on its way in the form of a breaking away from the sort of bourgeois identification that might be a barrier to organizing across classes in the tech sector. And this is happening at the same time that a broader tech lash is figuring the founders of these companies, long deified as geniuses, as instead effectively the antagonists in a struggle for a more free, fair, and democratized access to the power of technology in the present moment. Um, so, you know, I wanted to say that uh, I'm a huge fan of your book. Thank you. There's this like mood almost of antagonism to the entire book. You're saying like, we can't expend energy on the wrong target, uh, which is why you take issue with something like Cambridge Analytica being this like high profile scandal um, because it's, yeah, it's not, it's not perfectly suited to inspiring the specific kinds of outrage that you see as like meaningful and I guess like on that point, um, like there's there's also this sort of uh, dominant mood of trying to emphasize the material over the moral in a way like that tone of suspicion and distrust 
you know, it, it has its um, basis to some extent in a sort of moral outrage. Um, and like, if you look at all of the books that we get on technology, it seems like there's a fair bit of moralistic denunciation. Uh, and certainly your book has a little bit of that. Um, but it is in a lot of ways, a more materialist text than a moralistic one. Mm. Um, and I guess, you know, I want to ask like, why did you feel like it was important to stress that this like shift in public opinion has no reliable relationship with public policy? Cause like we can often mistake a shift in discourse. This is something Holly Jean Buck has written about in ending fossil fuels. Like we can mm-hmm. mistake a shift in discourse for a shift in the material reality, but it comes with, as she says, like a special peril, Um, and so, yeah, like you talk about this exasperation, this tone of suspicion, but at the same time, you're saying like, we need to focus on how to leverage it. Uh, what are the barriers to that specific act of political translation? Like, you know, how do you kind of redirect people's attention in that way? Charles Mills has a lovely article about the role of morality in Marx's work that I have thought about often. And Mills makes the point that Marx often deploys moralistic or moralizing language. If you read Marx, he uh, is perfectly capable of deploying you know, righteous rhetoric against the bourgeoisie, of course. He has often very colorful prose. But for Marx, morality has quite limited analytical and strategic value, which is to say morality doesn't do a very good job in explaining human behavior. And it also isn't that useful for thinking about how to transform the world. Right. People don't typically behave in certain ways under a social structure like capitalism because they're good or evil. They behave in certain ways because they are embedded in a set of constraints and incentives that are generated from the social structure. Similarly, it can be satisfying and indeed entirely accurate to denounce someone's behavior moralistically, as Marx does often. But that moral invective of that kind, moral exhortation, does not actually change the world. It may play some useful role in raising consciousness. Uh, But at the end of the day, material forces are what transformation is built on. So Mm -hmm. that discussion is quite influential for how I think about this distinction. And crucially, what I like about it is that it's not saying that there is no role for moral, moralistic language. You know, I refer to the big ISPs in the United States as slumlords. So clearly, yeah, yeah. you know, avail myself of certain moral terms, moral categories in a polemical register. There's obviously utility in that. But at the end of the day, the reason that a firm like Comcast or indeed a firm like Facebook produces deleterious social consequences has very little, in fact, nothing to do with the moral compass of the individual executive who happens to be at the helm of that capitalist enterprise. So, you know, this is obviously a very vexed question of uh, agency and structure. And I sidestep (laughs) that Mm -hmm. in the book, among others. But That's how I understand the division of labor, let's say, between the material and the moral. There are material constraints, material conditions that shape and structure our social lives. And I want to draw attention to those, particularly as they operate upon the internet, with an eye towards figuring out how to build a social movement that is large and disruptive enough to change those conditions and constraints and in turn change the internet. And I mean, I think that approach is, is really convincing. Uh, as you say, it doesn't like exclude uh, uh, the expression of outrage, denunciation, but it's like, it's saying like, there's not, it doesn't give us as much traction maybe 
And this is why maybe you say like early on in the book that it's your book is not a manifesto in the traditional sense, you know, Um, it doesn't have that specific, you know, tone or or some of the generic features of like a manifesto. You're trying to blend the two. And to me, like in terms of that balance, I wanted to ask about this uh, question of the sort of ecological effects of tech, which you touch on like only briefly, right? There's a, you know, the book, for example, opens in the ocean with a set of somewhat you know, strangely organic or agrarian tropes of what fiber optic cable cables uh, are doing for us. You write that, quote, they irrigate computers with information, for example. Uh, there's a really palpable sense, especially in the first pages of the book, that the reader needs to understand how the Internet has a body, as you put it, how it's a material thing with material impacts on the environment, um, the, the sort of industrial reality of the cloud, uh, to use your terms. It got me thinking about another book on tech that addresses this a lot, uh, Kate Crawford's Atlas of AI. Um, She spends a lot of time trying to make this visible for people, talking about like how tech companies, there's a real discrepancy between the enormous amount of energy they use, which is apparently a closely guarded secret, um, and the geopolitics of the massive amounts of water um, that they use, all that kind of stuff. So I think it's not a stretch to say that uh, the tech lash is happening in lockstep with a reckoning around the culpability of large corporations in driving the climate crisis. You know, for the moment, I want to ask about like some of the choices you're making in the book about how to represent the environmental effects of tech. It's not like you know you wanted to focus more clearly on the social consequences of privatizing the internet. Um, how did you make? How did you strike that balance? Well, as you point out, Scott, the ecological impacts of the internet and and tech more broadly. It's not something that receives a lot of attention in the book. I think it was one of many scoping decisions that I made that were difficult, but necessary to keep the book at a certain length. I definitely wanted this to be something people could read in one or two sittings. Um, So Mm. there were inevitably things that kind of had to be uh, taken out of the scope. But I agree that it's certainly important issue and one that has received increasing attention. You know, you mentioned Crawford's work. There are a number of scholars over the years who have been drawing our attention to the infrastructural layers upon which the internet depends, and in turn, Mm -hmm. how much energy is required to sustain those layers, how many different types of extractive activities are bound up in the creation and reproduction of all of the stuff that is required to make the internet work. I think all of that is is a very important discussion and a very important component of the broader climate justice movement, because as we think about how to decarbonize different sectors, you know, tech, which often presents itself as one of the cleaner sectors, Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, needs to be reckoned with quite directly. I mean, the, the, the companies who make up tech tend to be a bit more sophisticated on the public relations front when it sure. comes to climate um, than, you know, say, <laughs> uh, the, the kind of quote unquote dirtier industries. But in fact, you know, as, as a number of scholars and activists have drawn attention to, these are quite dirty industries and they they also collaborate quite closely with the truly dirty industries. I mean, when one thinks about the role of the big cloud computing platforms, uh, Google Cloud, Azure, AWS, in facilitating oil and gas extraction. This is something Mm -hmm. that my magazine, Logic Magazine, ran a piece on. Um, Bloomberg has also done some good reporting on. So there are a lot of climate justice issues one could target when it comes to the tech industry, no doubt. And I think, you know, just the kind of aura around tech makes it really like well positioned in some ways to capitalize on this like euphoric rhetoric around net zero. Um, mm. Like, of course, machine learning will give us that, right? Like, it's just yeah. like people just spontaneously assume that. But um, yeah, I wanted to ask about how, though, like your book spends a lot of time thinking about the role of experts and skilled workers in the tech sector not just this book, but the making of a tech worker movement as well. Um, And I think I want to ask about this because it's become sort of like a sticking point in climate debates as well. Like Matt Huber, for example, 
is has been getting a, a fair amount of criticism from some kind of radical eco-socialists for suggesting that degrowth is a strategy that won't work, basically, that isn't realistic, that isn't politically pragmatic. Um, and, and yeah, like he says, basically, we need to envision ways to build on existing institutions like the vast number of workers in the energy sector in order to get to a post-fossil fuel future. Um, and you make it clear that for alternatives to the current state of the internet to exist at the local or global level, it's going to require the convergence of, as you put it, creators and users. Um, and, mm. and on this point, I guess, like, again, to just make it visible, make it material, like, I was hoping you could talk about specific groups like the Design Justice Network, the historical example of the Greater uh, London Council. Um, I'm just curious to hear more about those those groups and how they model um, a different, you know, a different alternative than than, for example, like getting more kids and coal miners to like learn how to code. Right. Um, that idea of like just a diffusion of tech expertise um for service in a hi- hi- still hyper privatized tech industry like those models for you are about a different whole mode of production how do and did those sorts of organizations show us the way to create and maybe sustain these radical elements um yeah in terms of liberating these skills well before we get to possible models i'd like to dwell a bit more on the the difficulties and the difficulties here are quite acute because the, the first difficulty, as you suggest, is what should the role of expertise be in social mm-hmm. movements and in some more democratic future? And this is a difficult one because you know modern society requires all sorts of specialized forms of knowledge in order to function, but the possession of those knowledges. Uh, in turn creates hierarchies that any project of liberation would possibly aspire to flatten or at least weaken in some way. So this question of how to, you know, to put it quite simply, make the engineers serve the people is one Mm -hmm. that left movements among scientists, science workers, engineers, tech workers, have long considered, have long debated. There's not a particularly easy or straightforward answer to that, aside from stating the general principle that technical knowledge, expertise needs to be subordinated in some way to proletarian leadership, if you want to put it in a Marxist Mm -hmm. idiom. Mm -hmm. The second, perhaps even more confounding difficulty is how does one build a liberatory technology out of a capitalist technology. Uh, also, not particularly easy to do because yeah. uh, as, as we are all, I think, well aware, technologies have politics of their own. They are encoded, embedded with particular imperatives which have been transmitted to them from the social structure. You know, technologies are developed and engineered with certain ends in mind, which historically have much to do with the pursuit of profit, with the control of labor power, uh, with empire, uh, mm-hmm. with expropriation, exploitation, and so on. So the question of how one looks at this vast technological inheritance and tries to build something better out of it is, is again, quite challenging. To yeah. move Uh, uh, to a more hopeful (laughs) note, which is some of the inspiring experiments in trying to, uh, if not exactly solve these difficulties, making some headway towards uh, a better blueprint, let's say, for how to move forward. Um, I talk about a few groups in the book. One is the Design Justice Network. And I draw here in particular on the work of Sasha Costanza-Chalk, And this is an organization that is trying to develop a more democratic design practice. What does it look to bring communities of people who will be directly affected by a particular technology, let's say, into a space where they can determine broadly the principles, the practices that will be used to design this artifact? And again, here, the question of division of labor is complicated because inevitably Mm. there are specialized 
forms of knowledge that will be required to build these technologies. But nonetheless, how do you find ways to, to the extent possible, democratize the process, put people mm -hmm. who are affected by these technologies in the driver's seat in determining how they are designed, how are they developed, how are they deployed? Another experiment along these lines are a set of spaces that the Labour Party-led Greater London Council in the 1980s created called technology networks. These are a bit like hacker spaces or maker spaces today. They were spaces where ordinary people could come in, get connected with resources, with technical experts, and build different kinds of tools and technologies that would improve their lives. In particular, a lot of energy efficiency tools came out of these technology networks. So mm -hmm. these are inevitably rough drafts. They're not intended to be the last word. They are kind of steps in this complex, nonlinear dialectical process of transformation towards a more liberating technology. But I think they give us some sense of the possible steps forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's not easy, as you say, but it's like, it's urgent, nonetheless. And I think like the, um, the sort of, I talked to Anna Singh on this podcast, and, um, you know, she talked about like the, how hope is tricky, right? Like, it's like, we were so hungry for hope that on some level, it like stands in for this more messy, rigorous analysis. And like, talking about the division of labor and historicizing tech as a political formation, I think, um, gives us maybe like a, a better footing for, I don't know, a radical hope, but like a huge part of the revolutionary sentiment in your book is really centered on the need to democratize the pipes or the backbone of the internet, the actual means through which access to the internet is either provided, denied, managed, monetized, etc. But there's also a lot of like speculative research uh, on what you call the online malls. I was amazed, honestly, at how clear you were about the need for a public option uh, that, you know, that might contest the power of algorithmic media. Uh, and especially like in terms of how the profit driven production of content sort of hollows out the journalism uh, we get today. Like to me, that's something that, you know, I've read about it in other places, but you just you're unequivocally saying that, quote, uh, a public option for media production would ensure a better supply of content. And for me, like this is maybe most relevant again to global heating where like news deserts, it feels are going to genuinely contribute to the production of actual deserts. If, if, you know, for example, like if you were to Google the phrase heat waves during the summer, you probably wouldn't have been directed to information about the extreme heat events the world's facing. Instead, Google would have probably given you a link to the glass animal song heat waves um, <laughs> because of this like privileging of popularity on search engines. Uh, it would be a logical guess that somebody was looking for that song despite the increase year after year of these intensifying heat waves. And so it's like, how do we reconcile the fact that considering all of the current media available for receiving something like climate related information, searching heat waves takes us to more links for a pop song than to you know, pertinent sources on threats to collective survival. Hmm. I'm wondering, like, is something like that evidence basically of the power of filter bubbles? Because I know your book really tries to kind of pop the filter bubble thesis. Uh, you say that, quote, the Internet does not brainwash users because brainwashing is a myth. Um, so I was just hoping you could kind of talk about the need for for a public option, but also the need for more nuance around the this hyperbolic notion of like filter bubbles, which is so commonplace. Mm. Well, I would step back from the internet specifically and make a broader point about how the commercialization of media affects the quality of the information that circulates in media. Mm. And in the book, I draw on the work of the media scholar, Victor Picard in particular. And Victor makes, I think, a very important point, which is that the internet participates in this much longer and broader history of how a highly commercialized media sphere and the United States among advanced capitalist countries, we have one of the most highly commercialized yeah. media spheres. You know, there's really no role uh, for the public sector. We have something called public media, but as we know, it doesn't receive all that much funding 
from the government. It's, it's really listener supported. So how does a highly commercialized media sphere affect the quality of the information? And we have a lot of historical evidence to help us answer that question. And the evidence is not encouraging. As mm-hmm. one might expect, the profit-making imperative incentivizes particular framing of particular types of stories. It, in, it specifically, to be more concrete, produces a strong tendency toward sensationalism, toward mm-hmm. what we would today call misinformation, toward inflammatory content of the kind that is likely to find readers and thus be convertible in different forms to advertising dollars, whether in the days of, of the hegemony of print newspapers or in f- today's Facebook, um, and not privilege high quality, reliable information, particularly information that contests the narrative of the dominant group, you know, and, and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, one of my formative experiences as a young person was the Iraq war. And one can (laughs) remember the role of the media in, uh, cheerleading the Iraq war as, as simply one example of many of how a profit driven media sphere tends to produce pretty bad informational outcomes. So I would argue along with, with Victor, that a company like Facebook and what I call the online malls, uh, which is my slightly pedantic alternative to platform as a term, uh, what they do is they essentially supercharge this tendency that they inherit and amplify this tendency of the profit motive to corrupt, to contaminate our informational spaces. And they do Mm. so, of course, uh, by using algorithmic filtering to embed this imperative to maximize user engagement throughout the entire enclosure of the online mall. And as we've seen, that has had some pretty destructive effects on the quality of the information that circulates in those spaces. Yeah, yeah. And as this like kind of broadening effect, not like reducible to one scandal, right? Like as a as an ecosystem change, right? Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, you you uh, you mentioned that, you know, you use this term online malls as a somewhat like pedantic metaphor. Um, I wanted to ask about like your specific writing style in the book. Uh, it's such an incredibly accessible book. And you're thinking a lot about sort of um, the, the format of it and, and the purpose of it. It feels like there's a conscious political commitment to that accessibility. And part of the way you make the material accessible, as challenging as it is to grasp the architecture of the cloud, for example, um, is through the use of these carefully crafted metaphors. Uh, the book is just teeming with metaphors. And you even give a reason for it. You say that the Internet is, quote, too sprawling to squeeze into a single frame, too big to see without a metaphor. And maybe the most significant one in the book, and one you didn't invent, but that you draw on and explain, is the metaphor of the stack. Uh, You've talked about this in other places, so I won't necessarily ask you to explain what the stack specifically is. People can read your book to get that. Uh, But I did want to, you know, jumping off your bursting of the filter bubble, uh, ask you to expand on the idea that this metaphor of platforms is super misleading. Like you're saying that actually that metaphor is strategically misleading. Um, why would a company like Google be interested in attaching itself to the metaphor of the platform? Um, and how are you kind of destabilizing that that platform? Well, the scholar Tarleton Gillespie makes this point beautifully, and I'm really just paraphrasing Tarleton's work here. And, and he makes the point that the term platform evokes an aura of openness, of even-handedness that is very strategic for these tech companies, right? They, they want to present themselves as platforms and all, all of the different characteristics that that metaphor conveys. Mm-hmm. But in fact, they are not these open level, even apparatuses. They are intimately involved in organizing in governing our online life. They are sovereigns, if you like. They're mm-hmm. not just 
spaces that we come upon and use and build things on top of, which is you know the, the specific technical meaning of platform before it was co-opted and enlarged to mean pretty much anything. Mm-hmm. So as an alternative, I propose the term online malls, and this draws on the work of the scholar Jathan Sadowski in particular, but it's a way to think through how these large, complex computational systems have generated enclosures that host particular kinds of interactions, just as a shopping mall does. If you think about an offline shopping mall, it's a place that hosts interactions of a commercial kind between a merchant and a consumer, also of a social kind. If you were a suburban teenager, you probably went to the local mall to hang out with your friends in the atrium, right? Maybe skateboarding. It's like, where else are you going to go, right? (laughs) Right. Yeah, Yeah, get yelled at by the mall cop. If you're an elder millennial like myself, you probably remember watching a lot of movies where this, these are yeah. major plot points, <laughs> life in the, in the shopping mall. Mm-hmm. Um, so various interactions take place within a mall. Um, and those can be commercial interactions or social interactions. Within the world of the online mall, we see these same tendencies. Now, crucially, the online mall controls the architecture where these interactions take place, which means they can encourage interactions of a particular kind to take place more frequently. They can mold and shape those interactions freely in order to fit their own imperatives. So they do have a type of sovereignty over these spaces. And crucially, you know, what ultimately distinguishes the online mall and which is the basis of its business model is that within the walls of the online mall, all of these interactions, everything one does within the enclosure is an occasion for the manufacture of data. And this data in turn can be monetized in a variety of different ways. The way that we are most familiar with in the popular discourse, of course, is personalized or so-called personalized advertising Mm -hmm. of the kind that makes Facebook and Google most of its money. But that's not the only way that data is monetized. Nonetheless, data manufacture and monetization is the basic foundation of the online mall. That's its reason for existing. And that's essentially how these companies have become so successful, how they have managed to build very lucrative businesses on the internet, which you know, in the mid nineties didn't actually seem that feasible. There was a lot of difficulty in doing so. Yeah. And you give, you, you, you explain how like eBay is actually like underrated in terms of its specific like impact on pushing mm. privatization up to, up the stack to use a phrase from the book. But, um, on that point about like the manufacture and monetizing of data, like another term that is like common uh, to understand that is this notion of data mining and like platform, you know, the word platform uh, that's, that's kind of a, it obscures a lot, right? Kate Crawford makes this point about the kind of mystifying nature of that term data mining. Um, She says like the idea that data is being mined sort of obscures the fact that it's like this predatory and antisocial process of data theft. Like she talks about the collection of like mugshots and how there's just no, mm. like there's a, it's completely devoid of anything like empathy. Um, and, and she says like, it's not the extraction of some natural resource. Mm-hmm. And you have a, 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 another metaphor that you use for data that is akin to that. I think, you know, when you're trying to analyze the increasingly ple- prevalent metaphor of data as oil, um, used in places like The Economist, you say that data is actually more like coal than oil uh, because it was foundational to social media companies becoming so powerful and to the propelling of privatization up the stack. And I was hoping I could use that figure of data as coal as a, as a way of kind of asking you a bit about the, the historicizing the work that you do in the book. Um, you say that one of the ways we can think about uh, the privately controlled internet which is not the only internet that was possible, is that it's like a shipping container. Another metaphor, like as a kind of technology, the internet is like a shipping container. I love this idea because it says that the internet as we know it is basically a box that allows for a massive revolution in logistics. Uh, And the central player for for you in this is Amazon. Uh, So, you know, 
I'm, I'm both curious about this idea of um, data as as coal, the internet as a shipping container, but specifically the uh, you know or more materially, I'm I'm curious about Amazon as principally a quote data company because I don't know that that's how people like think about Amazon. Um, they might think about it uh, in in terms of an online mall, but they're probably not imagining that Amazon is primarily um, a data company. To what extent is is the dominance of Amazon about the control of data that it wields? Amazon is interesting because it's so many companies rolled into one, and Amazon right. is so dynamic in comparison to other firms. I mean, one thinks of Facebook mm-hmm. as kind of entering this period of senescence where it's becoming this kind of uh, oversaturated, uh, strange place where everyone's kind of slowly losing their minds. Mm-hmm. Amazon just manages to find ways to continue to to grow. But you know, Amazon in the late 90s in particular makes a very conscious effort to turn itself into more of a technology company. Of course, it's an mm-hmm. internet company from the start. I mean, Amazon.com is a is a web storefront, but the push to hire more technical people to start to think more carefully about how to apply user data toward recommendations, toward decisions about inventory, all of this really starts in the late '90s, early 2000s. And uh, one of the expressions of this is, of course, the creation of Amazon Web Services, which launches uh, in a couple of different phases, um, but swiftly becomes the major provider of cloud infrastructure services and is now a very significant line of business and one that Google and Microsoft are trying to replicate and, and to catch up with. Uh, but mm-hmm. that is, and that is, I think, a piece that is relatively well known when when folks think about the more quote unquote technical side of Amazon. Amazon Web Services, AWS, probably comes mm-hmm. to mind. But it's also a bit of a red herring because all aspects of Amazon are are quite technical. You know, that's really the tissue that unites all of these seemingly disparate lines of business. And in particular, the the piece of this that I spend the most time on in the book is how Amazon becomes a space for third-party sellers as well as its first-party line of business. So Amazon, Mm -hmm. which at the time was quite controversial internally, makes it possible for external merchants to compete against Amazon on price. And the lowest price merchant would receive the top billing on the site. As you can imagine, there are a lot of people within Amazon who thought this was suicidal, but it unlocked a very lucrative business for them to the point that third-party sellers now outnumber, or I should say sales from third-party sellers outnumber those from first-party sales. So, Mm -hmm. you know, Amazon in, in many ways is kind of the most interesting tech company. I think, which is funny because it, you know, I would say, you know, union busting uh, has hopefully received a bit of negative attention. But in contrast to a company like Facebook, it has received probably less uh, of the tech lash, has felt less of the bite of the tech lash, let's say, with some exceptions. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that like, you know, when... When you know Chris Smalls organizes tech workers in an Amazon warehouse at this sort of specific layer of the stack, it it gets attention from like Jacobin and Bernie Sanders, um, but it doesn't have ripple effects in the same way that um, Facebook's scandals have. Um, and yet, you know, there there is this there is a way in which um, I think your book is trying to expose. Uh, moments along the way that could have brought into being another internet. Um, so, you know, the house that Bezos built is one thing over here, but like Uber, uh, I, you know, to me, the way that you talk about the social effects of policy decisions that sort of circumscribe the internet we know is, is sort of crystallized in the section on Uber because, you know, you're talking about, um, you know, uh, uh, things like Proposition 22 in California and these, these moments where, the formation of laws and policy changes the landscape in ways that uh, facilitate the growth of, of a company that now 
um, you know, is not only ubiquitous, but has has these kind of knock on effects within the industry where like other companies are trying to Uberize and so on. Um, so like on that point, the thing I'm really curious about with Uber, uh, the thing I want to ask you about is like you you say that like Uber benefits from a kind of deep seated association between big tech and innovation. Uh, there's a section where you talk about how this ideal of creative disruption really lets Uber sidestep scrutiny. Um, you write that, you know, the perception that, uh, quote, Uber is a internet company has helped it persuade politicians and regulators that it represents a novel corporate form and should basically be left alone. Like I knew that Uber wasn't profitable. For example, the New York Times has devoted podcasts to this. And, you know, I think that's sort of well known. It's kind of a fun story like, hey, Uber's everywhere, but it doesn't make money. What I learned from your book was that it's allowed to be unprofitable because of its command of vast and growing reservoirs of data. Um, and I wondered if you could just give us a glimpse of what kinds of data Uber is collecting and maybe speak to how that command of data is key to its market survival. So the way Uber uses data is interesting because on the one hand, they use it in ways you might expect them to use it, which is in various kind of optimization initiatives. You know, they're collecting data about how a driver is driving, routes they're taking, you know, how frequently they break, all sorts of information that in turn can be used to develop uh, more sophisticated algorithmic management techniques that are designed to, let's say, extract more labor for less pay from mm -hmm. that driver. Things that you know are happening in an Amazon warehouse, a kind of classic tailorized algorithmic management techniques. But what's particularly interesting about Uber's use of data is that it also has a rhetorical or symbolic value so that for Uber to persuade investors that it is worth a certain amount of money, despite being wildly unprofitable, it can point to its vast trove of data as evidence of its potential profitability. Because there right. is an expectation that as with other large tech companies, collecting large quantities of data mean that they means that they will be able to at some point, unlock monetary value from it. Now, whether they can, I think, remains to be seen. And, and since I wrote the book, you know, the economic conditions have deteriorated significantly. I mean, a company like mm -hmm. Uber now faces uh, a much harsher climate because of tighten, tightening monetary conditions than it did when I was writing the book. But nevertheless, data can serve this rhetorical, this symbolic, this psychological function for Uber. And it's a very interesting illustration of the interaction between human psychology, the financial markets, and information technology, you know, to mm -hmm. suggest that, yes, Uber is a technology company, but at the end of the day, its most important technology, its most important effect that it generates with technology is in the minds of investors to persuade right. them that Uber is not an insane thing to take a bet on. Now, there are fewer investors available than there were a few years ago, again, because of the, the broader macroeconomic landscape. But nonetheless, you know, Uber is still out there. Of course, it's raised prices. And that's another piece that, you know, has not, uh, was not something that I got to address in the book, because it was mostly developing mm -hmm. after I submitted the manuscript. But, um, but nonetheless, I mean, Uber is unprofitable on a scale that is unprecedented in the history of tech yeah. companies. People often point to Amazon as a point of comparison, but Amazon no didn't lose anywhere as near as much money or and, and also, you know, managed to become profitable. Again, how one evaluates profitability is itself contested with all these different accounting measures, but nonetheless was, you know, something appro approximating profitable uh, relatively quickly. Whereas Uber mm -hmm. is just gone on year after year to hemorrhage cash. It is staggering that um, just like building saturation and developing this, this trove of data is itself like enough to inspire belief to maintain this like semblance of profit. Um, but it feels like it's just like built on sand or something. And yet it's like, that's the nature of capitalism. It's like so much of the book is really about trying to kind of shift our perspective away from 
the hegemony of the profit motive itself. And like a big part of the story here, the kind of mythology, it seems to hinge. This is something you write about uh, uh, with uh, Moira Weagle in Voices from the Valley, that like a lot of it is based on the idea of the founder um, as a kind of sacred figure. And I mean, we can do this on a case by case basis. I think Uber is less reliant on that, but it did face, of course, a crisis of, of image uh, where it need to it needed to kind of recalibrate and Be- Bezos is this like Lex Luthor super villain. Like he apparently recrafted himself to be, you know, to externalize this specific, um, you know, uh, plutocrat identity that he occupies. Um, it all is part of like this complex picture. Um, and yeah, this idea of the, the tech founder as a, a sacred figure is something I really wanted to kind of pick your brain about because it's something we see everywhere. Uh, but it's something that I saw depicted in really interesting ways in Alex Garland's FX series Devs. Um, I don't know if you watched that show, but we get this like fictionalized story of a visionary who is at the same time reduced to being just a quote entrepreneur. Nick Offerman plays the character Forrest, who's this like messianic figure at a company that has outpaced all others in its proprietary control over quantum computing. I just, you know, I was curious about your assessment of how the imaginary around tech's founding figures has shifted in the era of the tech lash. You know, Aaron Sorkin has given us a couple of hagiographical depictions of tech's founders and Steve Jobs and the social network. But what's your sense of how the sort of iconography of the lone genius has shifted, if at all? I think it's shifted to the extent that the, the genius becomes an evil genius, but is nonetheless... Mm. The subject of the story right you know it's interesting you mentioned the social network right i mean the social network i i wouldn't think of as hagiographic necessarily it seems almost to anticipate the techlash representation of zuckerberg mm. at, at a time where you know he was never a particularly smooth media personality but nonetheless accrued a lot of goodwill um, sure you know certainly before you know, the bottom fell out and he started getting dragged before Congress regularly. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, my sense, and I am kind of approaching this tentatively because I'd be happy to be wrong, is that what the tech clash has done is retain the emphasis on the founder, but has turned the founder into a villain rather than a hero. That makes sense. And that's not a bad opening. Again, to return to the beginning of our conversation, that's a starting point, let's say, for a more interesting conversation. I wouldn't exactly use moral terms to try to understand why an executive is behaving in a particular way. But if someone thinks that Mark Zuckerberg is evil, it's easier to start a conversation with them about the political economy of the internet than it would be if they thought that Mark Zuckerberg were a hero. Right. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's always a challenge to to get people to think structurally because it's not the way we are socialized to think. You know, we are surrounded mm-hmm. by these highly personalized narratives. Um, and the idea that society is not simply an aggregate of individuals <laughs> is something mm-hmm. that, you know, my academic friends talk about struggling to instill into their undergraduates. It's, it's, it's not something that is intuitive, at least for, for folks who are socialized in our particular social structure. So again, yeah. I, I think one, one does not choose one's conditions famously, uh, but the tech lash I think is an improvement. It's a slightly better landscape on which to operate, but nonetheless, not an ideal one. And I think like that, um, that concern with, um, you know, reducing the, the landscape to just like a collection of individuals is, is maybe part of the reason why you, you only mention Mark Zuckerberg by name, like maybe once or twice in the book. Um, but one of the times you do, you say that he's quote, probably the most powerful man online, uh, for a variety of reasons. And you describe Facebook or maybe meta as his own quote, personal dictatorship, Um, And I think that use of the word dictatorship is so perfect because, you know, one of the biggest claims you make about the online mall of Facebook is that it's been a spectacular failure. 
in terms of limiting the growth of these right-wing propaganda networks. Um, if anything, you're saying that, and I'm quoting you again, the resurgence of the far right would be hard to imagine without something like Facebook uh, driving its spread. Um, you know, you know, given that you want to avoid this trap of claiming that social media is responsible for like brainwashing the unwashed masses, um, how did you also arrive at that realization that like part of the blame for white supremacist radicalization needs to be directed at Zuckerberg's personal dictatorship? You know, there's this idea in the book that what what has happened in these online malls um, is that there's been a kind of insurgency from above among groups that really believe in the preservation of a racial hierarchy. Well, again, this is a bit of a difficult issue to discuss because one has to be able to assign blame while also trying to clarify the precise nature of the complicity. So as we've discussed, firms like Facebook have an incentive to maximize user engagement. And this incentive is embedded within the filtering algorithms that organize how content flows through the platform. And this in turn, this is all very well documented. This isn't my conjecture. This is documented by extensive journalism and also research within Facebook, that that imperative to maximize user engagement in turn tends to prioritize particular kinds of content, sensationalistic, inflammatory content that tends to be generated uh, by the right. Now, there is obviously a relationship between the prevalence, even the predominance of right-wing propaganda on social media networks and right-wing politicization that in turn produces offline effects, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there's obviously a relationship between those two things, but yeah. the exact nature of the relationship is not linear. And this is where I take issue with figures like Shoshana Zuboff and those who suggest that Facebook, Google, and others have constructed some kind of brainwashing machine. And this is it's simply not true based on everything we know about how human psychology and politics interact. It's complicated. The process by which mm. people acquire their ideological frames is complicated. So yes, I think there, there is a relationship and we need to assign blame where it belongs, but we also can't take this kind of reduced view of how human beings respond to informational inputs. You know, this kind of mechanistic view that they simply receive a fascist meme and then become a fascist. It's, as we know, and if you have any of experience of this in real life, it's obviously more complicated than that. Yeah, no, I would hope so. Right. Like um, if we are so simple, then that's a kind of a terrifying situation um, in certain ways. And like one of the things you note is that um, the the existence of the Internet is also a space for liberation. I mean, like you have abolitionist politics and you have, um, you know, climate justice movements uh, proliferating online. You have the, you know, Black Lives Matter in some ways being uh, propelled in terms of organizing by uh, these network, a more network form of, of struggle, you know? So, I mean, and maybe, maybe this is where we'll kind of take things now is like, what are the sources of hope or like optimism of the will in this context? There, there are certainly gestures to it in the book. Um, I would say like a major source of hope in it. And, and this is true of internet for the people and also the making of a tech worker movement is the rise of labor organizing in the tech sector specifically, which you say was really, um, you know, uh, it was bumped forward by Donald Trump's election. And like, you know, the, the thing I love too, in this, this sort of, uh, narrative of, of the emergence of, I think like a different sort of democratic consciousness within tech is that you're saying, women and people of color uh, are more likely to be available to a class analysis by virtue, as you say, of being the more proletarianized members of the industry. If you could speak to that emergence and why it's so important to kind of correct the idea that is so dominant in tech, uh, that the very idea of creative work as work is a threat. Mm. So I'm, I'm curious about that. And just this kind of like mood of antagonism that runs through so much of your work. 
Sure. Well, well, maybe I'll conclude with a more general reflection on hope, which I think touches on many of the threads you opened in your question, Scott. Mm -hmm. When I think about where to find hope, what are the sources of hope? I tend to look for where are the struggles? You know, where are the places within society where people are already in motion? And to my mind, this illustrates a key Marxist insight, which is that efforts to create alternatives to capitalism are imminent within capitalism itself. Hmm. That one doesn't have to go out and, as the so-called utopian socialists who preceded Marx did, go out and draw beautiful pictures of a brand new world and invite people to enter into it with you. Rather, these pictures, if you like, are being drawn up in bits and pieces in these provisional, limited, contradictory ways by masses of people themselves, just by virtue of forging the relationships, forging the practices that enable them to survive. Mm -hmm. When one thinks about the working class communities that sustained the classical labor movement of the 19th and 20th centuries, one thinks of communities that, as a matter of survival, had to develop forms of solidarity, forms of mutual support, forms of what we would call today mutual aid, that, again, were, at the time, really about provisioning their basic needs, but also within them had a prefigurative element, articulated implicitly a different way to organize society, a different way of relating to one another. And that implicit content in turn made socialism seem more credible because socialism as an ideal, as a line of direction toward a possible future society seemed to embody these different tendencies that were already being developed implicitly in working class communities you know, as, as they needed to cooperate with one another simply in order to survive. Mm -hmm. And the sites of this varied. You know, we could think about the neighborhood, the workplace, the home. You know, there are many different sites of struggle. The reason I wanted to emphasize that is because I tried to take a similar approach in the book when it came to thinking about what a better internet might look like. I didn't want to create a blueprint and say, this is the better internet, and now I need to get my troops in formation and march off to that happy future. I wanted to try to look at what are the existing struggles? What are the existing experiments? Where are people already in motion? And is there an implicit content? Is there a prefigurative element here that we could draw out and make explicit, extrapolate into a better internet. Now, crucially, those communities may not think of themselves as engaging in the struggle for a better internet or engaging in struggle with a particular political content. They may not be, say, explicitly anti-capitalist. Certainly the community networks that I talk about in the book are not explicitly anti-capitalist projects. Hmm. Nonetheless, I think one can connect the dots and see the ways in which these different experiments and struggles add up to something that is greater than the sum of their parts and which can provide a direction in which we can start to move. Again, the point here is not to develop a final picture from these experiments, but really to develop a, a direction you know, which way are we going to go? What is our our line of motion? And that was the that was the hope in the book. And I think, you know, it's not limited to the internet. Those are my politics more broadly. And I mean, this is why I think you're drawing from abolitionism and you know, I, I see like the influence of somebody like Ruth Wilson Gilmore uh, on your thinking, the, this idea that like freedom is a place um, that we might feel defeated because the, this or that organization has been 
um, attacked and 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 in many cases like erased by you know this kind of neoliberal attack on the radical imagination but like that doesn't mean that as you say on page 36 of the book the desire for self-determination becomes like easy to kill you know that desire is what I hear you kind of uh, underlining here like the desire for self-determination that takes pleasure in sort of like a self-governing itself like it, it's it's like that's that's a thing with me that we maybe need to tap into mm. which you know there's all kinds of stuff in the book about uh the scale at which that becomes possible uh i really appreciate you putting the book together and uh talking to me today it was uh really really interesting to hear you kind of expand on some of this stuff thanks so much for having me scott <laughs>